0: Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and all month long during commencement season we love to bring you commencement addresses some memorable ones recent and old and our commencement speech today comes to us from our friends at Hillsdale College, the class of 2019 invited the Commandant of the Marine Corps to speak at their graduation, and the general accepted. Here's General Robert Neller, and by the way, you're going to hear him reference Dr. Larry Arne, our friend and the president of Hillsdale College. And you'll also hear him mention Pat Sajak, who's the new chairman of the board at Hillsdale, and you know Pat from his work at Wheel of Fortune. Let's take a listen to General Robert Neller.
1: I don't, I don't give speeches, um, so I'm going to ask permission from Dr. Arne to walk around and, and talk to you a little bit. But uh, to he and, and uh, Mr. Sajak, new chairman of the board, I did, I did consider the offer you made me, Dr. Arne, because he thinks so much of you seniors that he said, just take them all and enlist them in the Marine Corps. And I said, yes. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I had you for a second, though, didn't I? For me, this is uh, probably not a normal thing. Yesterday and today, I was presiding and giving an oath of office commissioning about 35 officers in the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps yesterday at College Station, Texas A&M, and today here at Hillsdale. So what am I going to say to you that would be different than what I would say to a group of young men and women that are putting on the uniform to defend their nation and take on the demands of that profession? I don't really think it's any different. And I don't think it's any different than what you've heard here while you've been a student at Hillsdale. I think the qualities and the attributes that make people successful. I think if you talk to Mr. Sajak or all the other people that are here, or the Van Andels, or all the people in business and the very successful people who rightfully and properly support this university, this college, there is no rocket science here. So in the Marine Corps, they, they tell you to keep it in threes, because people can remember three things. So let me give you three thoughts. Effort matters. You wouldn't be sitting here today getting ready to come across this podium to receive a degree if if you are not able to exert effort. But that effort doesn't end today. In fact, the demands of your effort are going to be even greater. There's a huge amount of talent among you. Your talent is only going to result in achievement if you're willing to put in the effort. And thus far, you have. And I know you'll continue to do that. The demands on your effort as you compete against people outside this college and around the world are going to require more effort the united states is in a competition around the world with others it will take our effort to come out on top the second thing there will be adversity there may have already been adversity in your life Uh, your parents will probably tell you about adversity maybe it was adversity that they've dealt with somebody but there will be times in the future when things won't go well. It may be professionally, it may be personally. There will be days when you'll be challenged. But your measure as a man or woman of virtue and character is going to be graded on or evaluated on how you persevere. You can't quit. You can't quit. I mean, the Marine Corps teaches us that. You can't quit. You figure out, you adapt, you overcome, you persevere, you figure out a way to solve the problem. And you've got all these people that Dr. Arn talked about, friends of the college, your parents, your friends, your family, your fellow classmates, who are going to be there to help you figure it out. You're never alone. You're never alone. So we have to overcome, we have to persevere. And the third thing is character counts. Character counts. And that's what this college is really all about. This college is all about character. I mean, you're smart, you're academically qualified, but I think the thing that may give you an edge is the discussions you've had about what's right, what's wrong, what's honor, what's integrity, what's virtue, what is a good man or woman speaking well, what is accountability and responsibility. So all those character traits, you think about the person in your life, they may be sitting in this room with us, they may be in the faculty here, they may be friends, but they're probably family members, coaches, teachers, people that you admire, that inspired you over the years to get you to this point today. And they had all those qualities. They worked hard, they exerted effort. They were men and women of virtue and character. They were humble, they were respectful. They did everything to make everybody else better. It was never about them, it was always about the team. So character counts. So that's my message. Effort matters, character counts, and we have to persevere in all things that we do. In closing, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today, and I congratulate you all on your achievement, and I congratulate your families for their support. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, they're going to say something about us. And the first part of that sentence has already been written. It's going to say your name, your hometown, and it's going to say Hillsdale graduate. And then there's a space. There's a space. And somebody's going to write something in that space. And that you own that space. So, what do you want it to say? This college is giving you the foundation to fill that space in the right and proper way, and I know you're gonna take advantage of that, so make it count.
0: Make it count, and what a great message. Effort, perseverance, character, and by the way, Hillsdale teaches all those things in spades. And my goodness, I would entrust no group of students more to own the space and make good use of it than the Hillsdale graduates. This is Lee Habib, General Robert Neller's commencement address to the Hillsdale College Class of 2019, and he is, of course, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. This is Our American Story. continue with Our American Stories. And this show is produced in a small town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And we love music on this show and storytelling. And this next story, well, for anyone out there who plays music just because they love it or plays a sport just because they love it and don't get famous, because most of us don't get famous, most of us aren't B.B. King or Johnny Cash or Elvis Presley and this next story is about just such a person Jesse got out around town and headed down to Clarksdale Mississippi and found this
2: story we're in Clarksdale Mississippi at the home of local blues man Lucia Spiller born in St. Louis 1962 he started playing in church on a guitar that his father gave him
3: my dad was born and raised in making Mississippi down in Knox County he moved to St. Louis. Um, he had 11 brothers and sisters, so... Um, yeah, I moved up to St. Louis from making. Um, when he was a youngster, I guess. A or nine, My mom, she's from Cape Coralda. Um, my dad's family, you know, I guess that's where I get my music jeans from. But my mom, you know, sang at church, that's around twelve trying to start playing basic church. So I was like the bassist for our church for years and years. Where I grew up playing uh, structured we drums and elementary school, fifth grade on through high school. Like bass guitar at church and like a bunch of my friends are clueless that I was and we had a few basement bands.
2: Lucius has played thousands of gigs at thousands of bars, and churches, and festivals over the years, too many to keep track of. But he still remembers his first real performance.
3: Yeah, uh, on the Easter program, at church, I sang uh, <laughs> Sunbeam, uh, sun Sunbeam, yeah. And I can remember at the end of the, uh, the song, i I'm, like, improvised. like, <laughs> improvise. Yeah, like, uh, sunbeam, sunbeam, Jesus on me, be sunbeam, sunbeam. I'll be a sunbeam for him. And it went boom, boom. And I can remember churches, you know, just laughing or well, clapping and stuff. And I don't know. And I had not rehearsed that part. You know, I just stuck that in there. I was about maybe four,
2: a while, right? As Lucius continued to play in church, his house became the house that all the other kids in the neighborhood would come to, just so they could play music together.
3: Because we were off in um, the league baseball, but we always had drums and guitars for Christmas. So every time after a game, my father was coach all the teammates wanted to come over to him, like just, you know, um, seven seventh grade maybe, about seventh grade we started a little basement band, so you call them basements up there in St. Louis. Um, high school I went to, they um, focused on fine arts and stuff and it was, it was like the real talent gene pool from our area. Matter of fact, Tennessee William Ford graduated from our high school back in, like, in the early 1900s. And, um, Lucius Spiller eventually
2: graduated with a degree in elementary art. Influenced by his father and other musician relatives, Stevie Wonder was another big inspiration.
3: Music is my life, man. Uh, There's always music in our house growing up. Like when the songs, um, see one of the songs in the key like life, um, double, vinyl plus like 45 and uh, Songbook came out. I think it cost like fourteen dollars, and that was a lot of money back in the '70s. So me and my brother saved up. I remember put seven dollars a piece, <laughs> and we got it. Uh, we were just listening that constantly.
2: You can usually catch Lucius down at a place called Reds on Wednesday nights in Clarksdale. And true to his roots, you can also find him playing at a small church on Sunday mornings.
3: As far as right now, uh, I play guitar over at this real small church called St. Mark's. Um, Yeah, I'm talking about it's a little bitty, just what they call a storefront church, like where you take a whole storefront and turn it into a little couple of pews. And, you know, to me, the church is in in your heart, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all about the new suits and yeah, big choirs and you know, big church band. And all. So, yeah, matter of fact, we don't even have a choir, so we just scolds flow. Walk with me,
4: love. Walk with me. Walk with me, love. Please walk with me. While I'm on this teacher's journey Walk with me, Lord, walk with me Hold my hand, Lord, hold my hand Hold my hand, Lord Please hold my hand, while I'm on, it is a journey, hold my hand, please hold my hand.
3: spiritual um, from way back, way back. First time I performed live was at my grandma's spills uh, funeral, because that was one of her favorite songs. Like I say, she passed away, she was like 95. She still had her Mississippi ways all them years. Uh, She was a housekeeper, you know, raised uh, these uh, rich white lawyers' kids growing up, because I can remember them all coming over her house. Christmas time and bringing her all kind of stuff, and, you know, I pretty much was the Mississippi housekeeper type way, and, uh, to that day, till she died, still, like, dressed like Harriet and you know, uh, I guess they have one like, kind of those men's shoes, it's probably still, uh, old school, deep down, in different parts of Mississippi, where the old, old ladies dressed like that, yeah, and she still talked with, you know, that, you chaps, you know, that, that, Mississippi dialect, um, and I sang it at a funeral, um, that was the first time I ever sang that song, and, um, I knew the song, and, um, I don't you know, I always sing that, you know, people probably say, what are they doing singing church, you know, up here in the club, at the blues club, um, well, my personal opinion, uh, all music, um, uh, one way another stems from the blues, whatever genre it is, whether it's pop, classic, today's country, modern day music. I always sing that song just you know I feel like it is a clearing, cleansing um, medium. You know we're not going to places to cleanse the, that bad juju out of the bad, karma.
0: Spiller's story, a musician's story, a blues story, here on our American stories. New York
4: signs flashing, taxi cabs,
3: and buses passing through the night. Distant
4: morning of a train seems to play.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about our nation's history. And as always, all of our stories about history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And as you know, we like to bring you events that shaped our country, and some for the better, and some for the worst. And through it all, there have been people fighting, fighting for the promises made in our Constitution. Sometimes the battles we fought have been lost. Today, Robbie brings us the story of the Plessy v. Ferguson case and a Supreme Court decision that solidified segregation for over 50 years. It's told by a descendant of Homer Plessy himself, Keith Plessy. Here's the story.
5: Separate but equal. It's a phrase that haunted African Americans for years. The right to separate individuals, restaurants, businesses, train cars, buses, based on the color of one's skin. Separate but equal was not a policy left over from the Civil War. It wasn't until more than 30 years after the Civil War that segregation became the law of the land. But not all states fell in at the same time. And in New Orleans, Louisiana, there was a man named Homer Plessy who would, with the help of the country fight for the equality that black citizens had tasted for a brief moment.
6: My name is Keith Plessy. I am a fourth generation descendant of Homer Plessy, plaintiff in the Plessy versus Ferguson case of
4: 1896.
6: Homer Plessy was born in 1863, March 17th, the same year that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He grew up in a turbulent time. Civil War was when he was an infant. Post-Civil War was his younger life where he experienced uh, reconstruction in Louisiana, being protected by the Union soldiers. They were able to attend the same schools as white citizens. There were three additions to the U.S. Constitution amendments, the, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th amendments. Those amendments came during Reconstruction. 13th Amendment abolished slavery. 14th Amendment equal protection of the laws. And the 15th Amendment was the right to vote. So those three things occurred during Reconstruction. And Homer Plessy was a young man experiencing those changes So it was developing him to not only enjoy the freedoms that came through Reconstruction, but to defend those rights when they were being taken away. And during his childhood, many protesters and uh, activists of his time set the pace for him when he became a young man. Homer Plessy's father died at a young age, uh, and Homer Plessy was about six years old when his father passed away. His mother remarried into a family uh, called the Duparts. Victor Dupart was part of the unification movement, and Victor Dupart's father in law was part of the unification movement. That movement combined white and black workers uh, who protested for equal pay, and they got it during Reconstruction. However, when Homer Plessy became a young man, those rights were slowly deteriorating. And Homer Plessy uh, attended these meetings with his stepfather, Victor DuPort. And he was familiar with the Citizens Committee, but he was not a member of the Citizens Committee. Uh, that was a group of 18 lawyers, businessmen, prominent citizens, a uh, mixed-race uh, organization. There were some white citizens, some African-American citizens, uh, long in the battle for freedom. I think their history goes back. Abolition, long before the Civil War. Uh, American Revolution, who also participated in the Battle of New Orleans. That Citizens Committee had a deep background in fighting for freedom. A lot of those uh, ancestors of The Citizens Committee who fought in the Plessy v. Ferguson case at the turn of the century were very much involved in the development of America. Homer Plessy himself had a relative that was decorated in the American Revolution. His great-grandfather was a gentleman by the name of Matthew DeVoe. Matthew DeVoe was decorated four times in battle in the American Revolution, which, not being recognized, as the American Revolution because Louisiana was still the Louisiana territory during the uh, American Revolution. So his history goes back. The, the right to fight for his freedom was born with the country. And it, it was in his DNA to battle for his rights. When 1890 rolled around and Louisiana decided to jump into this segregation chain of laws that were spreading across the South. Uh, Florida had adopted its segregation laws on trains, uh, Alabama had, was before uh, Louisiana, and when Louisiana adopted its uh, separate car law, it was 1890, and by 1891, a challenge was being presented to them uh, to change that law by the Citizens Committee. In New Orleans.
5: The Withdraw Car Act, or Separate Car Act, was a law passed in Louisiana that required railroad companies to provide equal but separate train car accommodations for blacks and whites. But Homer's case was not the first to challenge separate car laws. Another man who was white passing, Daniel Daydune, boarded a first-class car traveling from New Orleans to Montgomery, Alabama.
6: When Homer Plessy was selected, the state law was being challenged. The interstate law allowed trains outside the state of Louisiana, so it didn't apply. Separate car law didn't apply to those trains. But the trains that traveled within the state of Louisiana, the ones who were restricted by race in each car, Well then, if you you look at the Louisiana law as it was written, um, you had a first-class car that was designated for white citizens and a second-class car that was designated for anyone of color. In the system of the East Louisiana Railroad, they would have preferred to sell all first-class tickets as opposed to a separate car that had to be set up, say for instance, the white car was not full. One black citizen comes up to ride the train. You have to prepare another car for this guy, and you have a schedule to meet when your train is taking off. It's going to one, from one area to another. The delay that process by changing a car, having to add a car to the train, took off a lot of time from the schedule, which resulted in poor service. So you know those who who wanted to exercise segregation on those trains had to suffer being late for their appointments. So it didn't make sense. Now, that law also created another problem, which was how do you tell that a person's black or a person's white? In New Orleans, you had so many citizens who who appeared to be white, but they were actually black. And it was hard for the conductors to determine the race of someone. Until today, it's still a problem because, you know, I, I have a personal take on that, which I say that one of the most ridiculous rules that were developed back then was called the one-drop rule, that if you had one drop of African blood in your, your line, your genealogy line, that you were considered black. And in Homer Plessy's case, one of the most ridiculous things that they were saying was that he was one-eighth black because of his great-grandmother, Agnes, who was a slave. So he was considered an octoroon. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of ridiculous to try to have a meter to measure someone's race. You know, it, it just, it went into so many ridiculous that you know rather than being recognized as a human being as a person you had to talk about somebody's color their skin and, you know uh, just just didn't make any sense to me the citizens committee had already cut a deal with the east louisiana railroad to uh, work on this plan to change the law So when uh, Homer Plessy approached that train station, he was already expected to arrive. He purchased his ticket without conflict. He entered the train, the train car, which was designated for whites only, and he sat down. The conductor and the arresting officer were also hired by the Citizens Committee and the Eastern Louisiana Railroad to arrest Homer Plessy, take him off that train, so that they can challenge the law. He was bailed out because there was, the bail was set so he could be released.
5: The initial criminal case was overseen by Judge John Howard Ferguson, and he ruled that Louisiana was able to regulate their intrastate travel in whatever manner they deemed fit. After the verdict was passed, the Citizens Committee stepped in and appealed the case up to the state Supreme Court.
6: That result of the case uh, was appealed, to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was challenged in U.S. Supreme Court by Homer Plessy and the Citizens Committee. And that's when it became Plessy versus Ferguson, and it became a national case. What the Citizens Committee did to raise money to represent Homer Plessy, I think the phrase, if I can get it correct, was the uh, liberality of the rich and the might of the poor combined so you had a list around the United States of people who sent a dollar, who sent ten dollars. Some people sent fifty cents, but everybody combined created the fund to represent Homer Plessy in U.S. Supreme Court, and it was a national representation. It was fought for about four years. However, it was unsuccessful, as history would write it. The decision was separate but equal, became the law of the land, but in that instance, a new era of civil rights pioneers were developing uh, around the scene of that case, a fight that continued to actually change the law. After uh, separate but equal was adopted as the law of the land, uh, many other areas that were not segregated became segregated. So it brought about a backward step to America that I think it was a crippling situation, probably one of the worst, if not the worst decisions at a point in American history where we could have actually turned the tables on the inequalities that the country was producing at the same time with this narrative of uh, equal (laughs) justice for all, Uh, it, it was not being practiced at that time, and it was given teeth. Jim Crow gave segregation teeth to bite into American society in every facet possible. I mean, you had drinking fountains. Uh, Parks didn't allow you to come into certain areas. Even when I was a kid, uh, there was a park that exercised weekends uh, for white kids, and black kids had to squeeze in a little time in the park during the week. Uh, after school and the weekends when everybody was out of school uh, we couldn't go in that park. I was born in 1957 so that's a long time after 1896. Um, And you know it was still affecting my life as a kid uh, growing up in New Orleans. Eventually, Brown versus Board of Education uh, changed Homer Plessy's case, Uh, the Plessy decision, changed the landscape of civil rights law at that point. But transportation still was not changed until maybe the 60s, when you had uh, the Civil Rights Act signed. Uh, There were still buses being attacked. So the transportation issue was not solved. There was education in Brown v. Board. I remember as a a child, in elementary school, being told that I was related to Homer Plessy. One of my teachers, uh, who I can remember, Miss Waters, she brought the phone book into the room, and while we were talking about Plessy versus Ferguson, she looked at my name, stood me up in front of the class, and told the kids, Keith's last name is spelled just like Homer Plessy's.
5: But it wasn't until much later that Keith realized how closely related he was to Homer.
6: 1996, when I met author Keith Weldon Medley. And this gentleman was doing research on Homer Plessy, who he had done extensive research. And his book was being developed. It's called We as Free Men, Plessy versus Ferguson, the fight against segregation. And his book uh, entailed the genealogy of Homer Plessy's family. And that's when I really found out my connection to Homer Plessy through my great-grandfather. And also, at the same time, he was doing research on Judge John Howard Ferguson.
5: And not long after, Phoebe Ferguson, Judge Ferguson's great-great-granddaughter, and Keith Plessy, whose great-grandfather was Homer Plessy's cousin, would meet.
6: He invited us to his book signing, which we had never seen or known of each other before then. And at his book signing, we met for the first time. And when I first met Miss Ferguson, she shook her hand and she began to apologize for slavery, segregation, and anything that ever went wrong during racial relations. And I kind of interrupted her and said, hey, it's not our fault that those things happen." Uh, we can do something different. It's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson, it's Plessy and Ferguson. So we became friends at that instant and we've been friends ever since. And it took us from 2004 to 2009 when we actually um, developed the foundation. We signed our letters of incorporation at a restaurant called Cafe Reconciled. When we signed our papers there, we didn't realize that on July 9th, we were signing those papers. The 14th Amendment, it was adopted to the U.S. Constitution on July the 9th, 1868.
0: And great job, as always, to Robbie. And the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation is doing a lot to educate folks. Together, Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson are spreading their message that their mutual history can be a tool to create unity and understanding. They've seized the opportunity to pick up the torch, keep history alive, and share their vision for true democracy in the 21st century. I wanted to read you the lone dissenting opinion by Justice Harlan in Plessy v. Ferguson. Everyone knows that the statute in question, and this is the one separating white from black, had its origin in the purpose not so much to exclude white people from railroad cars occupied by blacks, but as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white people. The thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling in railroad passenger coaches, no one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no class here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights, as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will in time prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case, and that is Justice Harlan dissenting in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. Plessy v. Ferguson is told by Keith Plessy, the story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we bring you a story brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Cost. It's the story of Herb
7: and Lorraine Pergozin. And here's Herb. I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. We had a totally different way of living as kids. Nowadays, mothers go with kids to school. Um, They're afraid to let them go themselves. They they stay home, invite friends over. They're very careful. When I was a kid, um, I used to go out by myself I had all the freedom I wanted. i take my bike and i go to this park, which was miles away. Um, and I, I never told my mother where, where I was going, which wasn't really good, but uh, she was busy. There was a little bit of neglect there. And we weren't, uh, we didn't have much money. I went to Hebrew school. Um, I had a bar mitzvah. Um, it was a, a religious, household. When I left, I I really dropped that. I really wasn't religious anymore. Um, my wife, uh, after I got married, my wife was kosher because my mother would visit and father would visit and it was important that they came to a kosher home or they wouldn't eat in our house. Then I went to college. I got into a school called Hillier College in Hartford and uh, Hilliard College became the University of Hartford.
8: I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, where I spent the first 18 years of my life and never moved back after that. I was born in 1942, I'm 77 years old. That was during the war and we lived in an apartment house until I was three as renters. And then when I was three, my parents bought this three-family house on Kent Street in Hartford, uh, in the north end of Hartford. I graduated with honors from my high school class and I went to Syracuse. And um, I met my husband when I was 17, still in high school. I had a boyfriend when I was 16 and we broke up and I was heartbroken my first boyfriend ever. And so that first love always, you know, is painful when it breaks up and it usually does. Anyway, so I go to, I look for a job and uh, it was at the beach. And I, I saw a job advertised in the newspaper that they were looking for a babysitter. I applied for the job and she, the lady interviewed me and gave me the job. To be the babysitter for her two boys, and she was expecting a third, and she needed help. And she uh, lived at the beach in the summer, managing a cottage that rented rooms to vacationers. So she needed a helper with the kids. I was it. Turns out that that lady was my husband's sister, and he came to the beach to visit his sister and met the babysitter. Well, what happened was, my future sister-in-law ended up being the babysitter with her husband when he came on weekends while Herbie and I went out. <laughs> they stayed home and babysat. <laughs> and so, um, I don't know how well that went over, but that's what happened. Anyway, the relationship continued for about four months, and. Herbie also got me a job. I'm the only one allowed to call him Herbie. It's a family. His family calls him Herbie. Strangers, it's Herb. But it turns out all my friends call him Herbie too because they hear me calling him Herbie and they think that's his name. So he gets called Herbie whether he likes it or not. Anyway, we dated for about four months but we were both rebounding off of previous relationships and we weren't in the right place. And we were awfully young. He was 21, I was only 17, I was a senior in high school. But he got me a job, a winter job, as a cashier in a supermarket because he was the assistant cash department head and he had some pull and got me that job. So he was my boss. Well, that was great until we broke up and stopped dating because Herbie said, I don't want to get serious with anybody And so I don't think we better go out anymore. And so that was the end of that. It was kind of difficult when he'd come to work all dressed up in a you know, sport jacket and nice slacks. I knew he was going out with somebody. And I didn't notice, I mean, I don't think he ever noticed when someone would come to pick me up and take me out after work at nine o'clock. I'd finished work and sometimes I went out afterwards. I don't think he was even aware of it. But I was aware of him. I forgot about him, kind of, though, because I did go off to college after that, after my senior year. Two years later, fast forward, I'm now a sophomore in college, and I come home for a vacation, and I am dragged to this club meeting that my girlfriend belonged to. She belonged to this club at the Jewish Center called Atid. And, um, Herbie was a member of that club and goes to that same meeting
0: and when we come back we'll find out what happened after they went to that same meeting we'll find out what happened to Herb or maybe I should call him Herbie and Lorraine Prigozin and it's a love story and it's so much more folks but it's great hearing from people in their 70s tell their life story and we do that here on this show because well we tell everyone's story it's so true what Herb was saying about growing up at a different time where you could get on a bicycle and just go a couple of miles to a park. And your parents, all I was lamenting about this with some friends the other night, your parents would say, we'll see you when the sun comes down. And that would be a Saturday. You'd go out at like 8 or 9 in the morning, and they let you run free with open range for a dozen hours. And I don't think that's uh, available to many kids today, and it's a, it's a sad thing when we come back More of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, as always brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office, here on Our American Stories. with the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergozin here on Our American Stories. They had dated once before, broke up, because they were just too young. And after losing touch a couple of years later, they meet again when Lorraine was dragged to a club meeting at the local Jewish center. Here's Lorraine.
8: And he sees me there, and now I look a little different. I'm a college sophomore, and I'm more sophisticated. And he says is that you, Lorraine? And I said, yes, and you remember my name. He has a terrible time remembering names, always has. But he remembered mine, and so I said, you remember my name? And he says, I wouldn't forget your name. Anyway, we reconnected, and he asked if he could take me home that night from that meeting, and I decided to play it cool. And I said, no, I came with my girlfriend. I better go home with her. She'll take me home. And he said, well, could I have your address? And I said, okay, if you want it. He says, yeah, I'll write to you. We'll stay in touch. So I gave him my address and never heard from him. A few months later, I come back. I'm walking past this kosher supermarket. It wasn't even in my neighborhood. Don't ask me what I was even doing there. Out comes Herbie's mother. And she knows me. She spent part of the summer with me when I was the babysitter and she knew me well. And she said, hi, Lorraine. She said, does Herbie know you're in town? And I said, I don't think so. And then she said, oh, okay. And then she has a conversation with me and then she runs home and tells him. So I come home and the next day I'm ready to leave For school again I've got my suitcase in my hand and the phone rings and I think should I answer it or should I go outside and wait for my ride that's going to come pick me up and take me to school well I I answered it it was him and he said why didn't you tell me you were going to be in town and I said why didn't you write Anyway, there was nearly a letter there. By the time I got to school, he wrote so fast. I got a letter right away. And I invited him for um, a special weekend that they were having at Syracuse, and he came. That was it. We fell in love once and for all, and now I was 19 and he was 23, and we never dated anyone else again. Two years after that, we were married. He graduated from college the day before our wedding. The same, That was a very busy weekend. He graduated on a Saturday. We got married on a Sunday. We were married June 9th. He graduated June 8th. And we went on our honeymoon, and that was it. We never, ever returned to Connecticut except to visit.
7: I graduated. I went to work for GE because um, Uh, We got married. She was still going to Syracuse University. Uh, So I went to work. I I applied to the only two companies that would hire somebody who was a math major. There was General Electric and Carrier Air Conditioning. So uh, General Electric gave me a job. I went to work for them. And uh, they said, well, uh, we have a job as a programmer computer programmer. And I said, what is a computer and what is a programmer? I needed the job, so I took it regardless. So then I I learned how to program on the job. And the first thing we worked on was an air weapons control system. Uh, it was always a military type system. Um, the way that worked is uh, you... Um, you, you, got, you use radar to track an aircraft, and the information about that aircraft would be sent to a computer, and the computer would determine is it friendly or is it, uh, uh, you know, somebody at some aircraft you had to shoot down, <laughs> and or enemy aircraft. We would de- make that determination, and uh, we would send messages to shoot it down if we had to. I was uh, transferred to Florida. that worked at Cape Kennedy, and I wrote a program to interface with the command and service module and the lunar excursion module on the uh, Saturn rocket, which is the one that went to the moon. Uh, and then Kennedy died. I was at work when it happened. Everybody knows where they were when it happened. Um, So Kennedy died, and Johnson took over as president, and um, he moved the the Manned Spacecraft Center to Houston, Texas, because he was a Texan. (laughs) So uh, Cape Kennedy, of course, still was there, and they launched the, the missiles from there. However, The Manned Spacecraft Center, where they controlled the whole thing, was in Houston.
8: Herbie was working on the Apollo project, and he was a bona fide programmer then, doing some very important things. We lived there a year, but we didn't like Texas. Herbie decided to interview And on another job. He'd been with GE for three years now to see what he would be worth on the open market as a programmer. And there was an ad in the paper and we were on our way to go swimming at a friend's house. And they invited us for dinner and to go to the pool. And I had on my maternity bathing suit because now I was pregnant with our second child. And um, my little son was in his swim trunks. And my husband wore a suit to do this interview left me in the car downstairs so he goes up to do the interview and comes back down and says they want to talk to you I said me <laughs> look at me anyway up i went and they wined and dined me oh my did they knock themselves out to try to get me to get him to accept this job it was in california and uh he had been to california for uh jobs for ge that were debugging jobs emergency kind of jobs and he'd come here and work through the night sometimes debugging programs and stuff like that he saw the mountains and the climate and he loved it anyway i was sold by that but i was especially sold by the 27 percent raise in salary they offered him and the depressed area they were sending us to which meant everything was cheap And boy, that's what we needed. Cheap, (laughs) cheap but high raising money. We took, he took the job and off we went to California. And we lived in Lompoc near Vandenberg Air Force Base where we stayed for only a year because it was Federal Electric Corporation that hired him. They became part of ITT. ITT is a very uh, reputable good business, good company. Federal Electric was flying by its shoestrings, and there was one week where they said, sorry, we can't pay you this week. Your pay will come next week. You can't do that to somebody. So Herbie says, I gotta get out of here. So I said, we talked it over, and we, he decided, I have to give them their year. I'll stand the year, otherwise we have to pay back all our moving expenses, and they moved us white glove, and I can't afford that. We're gonna stay the year. Then I'll get another job. So that's what we did. And by now our, our our daughter was born. And then we get to Santa Monica, that's where we lived. And by now our children went to nursery school there. And I got very interested in that and decided to go into elementary teaching because the director of the nursery school had us come in and serve. And she said, you'd make a great elementary or nursery school teacher. You should think about this. And so I did. That's just what happened.
0: And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin. And what a life. What a life led beautifully. They just uh, fall in love and they get married. I mean, he graduates one day. He's getting married the next. How often does that happen these days? These are such big events now. And then they just they just got on with their life and moved about from job to job, working at Cape Kennedy on the Saturn rocket, but not really wanting to live in Houston, looking for something better, looking for the right place, and ultimately landing in Santa Monica, California, of all places, having been born where they were born, and about to enter a new chapter in their life, when we continue more of Herb and Lorraine's story, Herbie and Lorraine's story, here on Our American Stories, Our Better Health at Lower Cost series continues And as always, it's brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson family office. More of our American stories after these commercial messages. And we're back with Our American Stories and picking up with the story of Lorraine and Herb And When we last left off, Lorraine had just gotten her California teaching credential, and this seemed like, well, just an ordinary and really decent and good American life. But then, well, some things changed, and as all of our lives can, they can change suddenly. Dramatic events come upon us, some planned, some not. Before we begin this next block, we warn you that some of this Next segment contains some pretty heavy material. Here's Lorraine.
8: I had applied all over in the area hoping to get a job there. Nobody answered me. One week after school started, I get a call from the very school district where my children are going to school, Orchid School District. They need a kindergarten teacher. My specialty, I was trained in that because. Pacific Oaks, where I went to school, did early childhood education. They mainly trained teachers from kindergarten to third grade. That's just where I fell in. I had student teaching in kindergarten and first grade. I got hired. I stayed with that job for 33 years. And we lived in, in uh, Santa Maria for 48 years. We still have a house there, but we live part-time here. So. Um, Anyway, our children went through the Santa Maria schools. My daughter met a very sad end. She, um, she had a hard time. At 16, she attempted suicide, and she just felt kind of worthless, and sad, and friendless, and she jumped off the third floor of a parking lot of the mall in Santa Maria onto the pavement and she, in a sitting position, so she cracked her pelvis into a thousand pieces and they put her back together and she survived. Dr. Joe Mata, I'll never forget him, he was the only one that knew how to rotate the pelvis and put it back in position before it healed. They did this fast before it could cement itself in a wrong position or she'd be sitting on that rough edge of the pelvis her whole life and never walk straight. And she was on her way, she was okay. And she went to uh, City College in uh, Santa Barbara. They had a school for training hotel management and restaurant management. She went through the two-year program but didn't receive the certificate. The teacher said, you need another year. You're not ready and you're immature. And that broke her heart and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do that extra year he said she required all the other kids were graduating he wouldn't let her. She just quit and went to work in restaurants but she really did know what she was doing and she advised in one restaurant that they better clean their machines and when they didn't they got shut down by the health department. She was right but they weren't listening to her because she was 20 years old so no satisfaction that she was right if they didn't listen Anyway, she uh, had a boyfriend who wasn't the best influence and they secretly ran away together. She took my husband's truck and she told us they were going to the flea market to sell, you know, just use things that you sell at a flea market. And don't be surprised if we leave early in the morning because and I pack up bags because I'm bringing all my junk to the flea market to sell it with Jamie so we said okay well she never came back she was leaving and they made a wrong turn in the road they should have gone to Tahoe where Jamie's parents had a condo and instead they went to Reno and They got a job at the Sands Hotel, both of them. He became a sous chef there and she uh, was a waitress and she worked for Tony Romas in that hotel. And she didn't get along with the cook. She was feisty. She knew her business, as I said, whether or not that her her instructor taught her better than he thought he did and um, He didn't like her demands and that she wanted things on time and she wanted the orders right and all this stuff. And he was not sane and he went after her. And when she got promoted to, she was a bus girl. She got promoted to a full-fledged waitress after only a few weeks and she was very excited and she was going out with her friends to celebrate and he wormed his way into that group and said, Where are you going? And he was there. They went to Shakey's Pizza, and he followed her after. She was going to go back to the Sands, where Jamie was still working on a night shift. And he got her, she stepped out of her truck, got her out of that truck, dragged her off, and that was the end of her. He he beat her, he raped her, and he knifed her 11 times. Four of those wounds were fatal. Any one of four would have killed her. And then he left her in a garbage dump. And she was missing. And Jamie wondered why she never came to get him. And there was a police report about someone being found in this garbage dump, but the person looked to be 35 years old. Well, the bugs had, you know, it was buggy and hot in the summer. And she didn't look her age, but it was her. And um, there was a trial and the guy was caught right away. He's in jail for the rest of his life. There was a mistrial or he would have been put to death because they have the death penalty in Nevada. So we've been through some grief. She would be 53 now. I've often wondered what would have become of her had she been allowed to live?
7: That was—I get very emotional when I talk about that. But that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life, and it happened a long, long time ago. But I really haven't been able to deal with it. I've dealt. I've tried and I've thought I dealt with it because I let it all out, kind of. But over the years, whenever I talk about it, um, I get very emotional. My neurologist sent me to a psychologist that does testing. And he tested me um, and he determined that I had PTSD. So I didn't do anything about that, and I'm not going to a psychiatrist. Um, I'll deal with it in a, you know, the way I'm dealing with it. So uh, he also said that I had kind of a halfway to, uh, to Alzheimer's. And what
0: a story you're hearing, and what a sad and tragic turn of events for this family. She will be 53 now, Lorraine said, and I often wonder what would have become of her if she'd been allowed to live. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me, confessed Herb. And though it happened a long, long time ago, I still haven't dealt with it. And now we learn. And he learns from a doctor that not only does he have PTSD, that just doesn't happen to soldiers. It happens all the time to ordinary people who experience great trauma and then don't deal with it. He also found out that he was halfway on the road to Alzheimer's. That is a really rough day. When we come back, more of this family story, Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story, and again, part of our Better Health at Lower Cost series, brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. More of this remarkable and this sad story and what happens next, how they move forward here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of Herb and Lorraine Pergrozen. While having to deal with the PTSD that came with losing his daughter, Herb and Lorraine were also about to be faced with some life altering news.
8: My husband, he's almost 82. When he was 78, he has epilepsy.
7: We were on a plane. I was uh, sitting back, had my eyes closed, and I used to get these kind of dizzy spells, at least I thought that they were, occasionally. And I'd go, to bed, go on the bed, and it would be over in a very short time. And Lorraine said, you just had a seizure, because she noticed that my mouth was contorting. It only lasted a few seconds. I didn't know it was a seizure. When we got home, I got a uh, neurologist. And the neurologist did all the stuff, a brain scan and all the stuff. I wasn't happy with, the, with him. I knew I, when I went to, she put me on a different medication. And that one worked fine. And I was I was free of seizures. And then I started to get a little Hostile, and I was hostile to my wife. I mean, I never did anything like hurt her or anything like that, but I wasn't pleasant. So she said, That's the medicine. And she was going to put me on this other medication, and that's when this whole incident happened. And I can't blame the doctor because it was totally my fault. I was pretty stupid. Uh, in the way I handled the change from one medication to the other.
8: So she changed the medication, but he, we didn't understand how to wean off of one and onto the other. And there's a very gradual change that has to happen. We just didn't understand. We didn't make sure we understood. It was our fault. We didn't make certain that we had it straight. And we didn't know how important it was either and he had a violent reaction. And the next morning, he couldn't get out of bed. And I had to call 911 because I couldn't lift him, I couldn't drive him to the hospital myself. I called 911, they came and got him and took him by ambulance to the hospital emergency room where they stabilized him. We called the neurologist, she got him in that afternoon, but the damage was done. That caused brain damage right there. And he has never quite been the same since. He was like wobbly, unable to stand up. I mean, he, it, was, it was physical, but he um, improved rapidly. Then he began to notice uh, word lapses. He had aphasia of a kind where he couldn't uh, remember words. I noticed that I go out to the garage to
7: do something and I forget why I went out there. So I come back in the house and I think for a while and then I remember and I go out to the garage and do what I went out there for. And I was told that, you know, old people, that's what happens, so, cause I'm old. <laughs> um, so, but it didn't happen that the way it happened to me, the extent that it happened. I was very scared because I've seen or I know about people with Alzheimer's And I couldn't survive with that. I told my wife That if I get Alzheimer's, I don't want to live like that Um, I talked about, you know ending my life if I get that uh, Where I start losing everything because you lose everything you can't even swallow you can't You you forget how to do that Um, so when I got the diagnosis, um, I, I was petrified um, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so that's how, that's how I felt. I, I thought I was done for, you know, I didn't know how long I had.
8: I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And I just, I just took the bull by with the horns and we went right with it, with everything. We threw everything we could at it to fight it. And whatever advice we were given, we did it, no matter how bizarre or how, how difficult a life change it was. The neurologist worked with him and it looked like dementia was threatening. All of a sudden she, I don't know what prompted her, but she told us about Dr. Shurzai. Why don't we consider Dr. Shurzai's approach? And he had made an appointment with Dr. Shurzai already, but it was a three month wait. Well, in that three months, the minute I read the book and I told him about it, we went right on that diet. And he went on that diet strictly Once we made the decision, I threw out everything in the house that was the wrong food. I had a party for all my friends to come and raid my freezer, 12 of them. They came over. I said, I'm cooking dinner. We're having prime rib and we're having uh, tri-tip, all these great things in my freezer. And I'm going to cook everything I've got that I'm not supposed to eat. You come over and eat it (laughs) and we'll eat salad or something else. But you guys come and enjoy the food and help yourself to everything in that freezer that we can't eat, that is not vegan. They did, they cleaned me out. And anything they didn't take, I took to the food bank, all the canned goods and stuff. And we've been vegan ever since. And no sugar, absolutely no sugar. We see sugar in a label, we will put it back on the shelf and it won't get sold to us.
7: The main thing is, it has to be a plant based diet, and that's the basic thing that a vegan diet is. If it wasn't for my wife, she keeps me on it. I can't stray. I mean, I don't want to, but sometimes there's temptation. I don't uh, give in to it. And sometimes I see something that's kind of bad, I shouldn't have it. And I'll say, oh, I can have this. She'll say, no, you can't, (laughs) and then I don't. So if it wasn't for Lorraine, I'd be in big trouble. I'm really lucky, I'm really lucky.
8: He improved. My husband showed remarkable improvement from that diet, and Dr. Surzai's book explained, we did everything in the book. Uh, 20 minutes a day of uh, meditation it's a de-stressor it's wonderful it's so relaxing twice a day exercise that we do rigorously I walk five miles a day he does great with that and he got in such great shape we both lost tons of weight he looks wonderful he's all muscle now he's terrific and we do Cognitive stimulation. We play bridge and we take lessons. Now I take it very seriously. We play about three days a week. um, And lessons two days a week. We also do an exercise that Dr. Sherzai added. And I was kind of resistant to this because we already spent so much time on this program. But he said to pick an article in a magazine underline 30 words in that article he's doing an article I'm doing an article separate magazines exchange magazines this whole exercise takes one hour he's to memorize the 30 words I have underlined and I am to memorize the 30 words he has underlined and we are to repeat these back to each other after an hour is up from beginning to end of this process from from choosing the article to memorizing it, finishing the memorizing. Well, yesterday he was able to do 26 words. I could only do 28. So I'm, I'm quite a good measure against him. I don't have the issues he has, but look where he is.
7: So I started out getting six.
8: And then you went to 13. Yeah. And then you went to 15 for a few times and then you jumped to 21, and then you jumped to 23, and then you jumped to 25, and now you went to 26. 30 is the most you can get. I only underlined 30.
7: So that's a real step forward that I could do that. I'm, I'm not going backwards, I'm going forward. And that, I was pretty scared, I gotta tell you. And I feel a lot better now. I feel pretty good about that.
0: And you've been listening to Herb and Lorraine Pergozin's story. And after living through what is, hands down, the toughest thing any married couple can live through, which is the death of a child. My goodness, he then had to get the diagnosis. Herb did, which was that he was losing his mind. That is, Alzheimer's dementia had kicked in, and he was halfway there. I thought I was done for, he said. I didn't know how long I had. And it looked like dementia was... Well, it was going to destroy everything, but then she was told about the eyes. And by the way, we've told Dean and Aisha Shurzai's story, and their book was a Blue Zone book, and it was all about diets and living styles and lifestyles that end up getting people to much better living at much lower cost and much longer living uh, at the same time. And what do you know, his life gets turned around by diet, by exercise, by meditation and, of course, that memorization and cognitive wordplay, engaging the mind. Herb and Lorraine Pergrozan's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, as always brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office, here on Our American Story.